Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 117 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at Speak On Podcasts, and his name is Andrew Bartlow. Andrew has 25 years of human resources and talent management experience at organizations across a wide spectrum of sizes, maturity stages, and industries. He is the co-author of Scaling for Success, People, Priorities for High-Growth Organizations. He's a master's degree from the top program in his field, and he has been CECP, SPHR, and Six Sigma and Executive Coaching Certified. Andrew leads Series B Consulting, which helps businesses to articulate their people strategy and accelerate their growth while navigating rapid change. He also founded the People Leader Accelerator, which is the preeminent development program for startup HR leaders. Andrew and I have a lot of great conversation in this podcast about what HR is, what it has been, and most importantly, what it's looking like now as we're starting to come out of this pandemic phase and what it's going to be looking like in the future. So this is a great conversation for you to tune into because I have a great feeling that your organization is probably struggling with some of the topics that Andrew and I touch on here. So be sure you give it a good listen, take some notes, and uh, make sure you share any thoughts you might have with Andrew and I um, in this discussion. With that, I'm going to go ahead and get out of the way, let the stinger run, and let you get into this outstanding episode with Andrew Bartlow. All right, friends, welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon, and today's guest, as I mentioned in the pre-roll bio, is Mr. Andrew Bartlow. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Earl, thank you so much. Really glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, and I want to get you started where I start off all of my guests. Uh, when you hear the phrase, burden of command, what does that mean to you? Oh, boy. I, I think about responsibility. I'm a, uh, I'm a human resources uh, professional by background, and I think about the responsibility of leaders to be effective leaders. Um, and, and there's a tremendous weight um, involved in that responsibility to try to get it right, to try to treat people well and, uh, you know, continue to sustain the, the business that supports uh, those employees. Um, yeah. So something along those lines. Yeah. No, I like that. And, and, and I like the HR background here because, you know, with everything that's, that's going on in the world today, uh, with diversity and inclusion becoming more of a hot button topic with COVID, uh, being kind of an employment, uh, throwing the employment world kind of head over heels the way it has with telework and, and the things that we see now on, on the news about employers trying to open up, but not being able to find employees and all that good stuff. I'm sure it's pretty exciting to be an HR person right now, right? Exciting is an understatement. Um, boy, it's it's also it's also uh, scary. It's also um, a little dangerous to be an HR person. More turnover in the HR roles than than ever before, um, and, and a lot of pressure in, in HR. You know, trying to come up with answers to things that have never happened before. Um, you know, a pandemic like this uh, amidst um, you know some pretty tremendous outcry. Um, in the in the uh, overall world about social equity and and uh, applying that in inside workplaces, uh, you know, it's been the perfect storm. Well, yeah, I, I'm sure it has. And you know, again, with COVID really changing the way we work, just out of curiosity, like a, as we start to open up, we, we're starting to see people uh, come back to to physical workplaces after a lot of folks have been, uh, if their job is allowed, uh, been teleworking now for a year plus. Um, what do you see like the big change in the landscape of work going forward as we start to kind of quote unquote, get back to normal? Yeah, I, I see a, a great equalization happening. Um, you know, in, in part this, the, the 
awareness of social equity issues and fairness issues, you know, a heightened sensitivity to how people are paid and how people are treated in the workplace. That's part of it. I also see this great equalization of uh, geography and remote work where previously there'd been, you know, the, the requirement or a very strong bias to being based in a you know, major employment hub like a San Francisco where, you know, area where I'm based, uh, New York and, and so on. And, and now that, uh, that it's been proven that uh, employees can work anywhere and still be largely effective, that uh, you know, companies and employees will start to uh, uh, expand their openness uh, to people working elsewhere. So there's a great equalizer in terms of those economic and employment opportunities, and that will start to trickle into how people are compensated and how people are managed. It's, uh, it's really an interesting time to be doing this work. Yeah, well, definitely. And, and I think that's a really good uh, kind of question you, you posed there is, you know, with, with pay and, and a lot of those places that, that you mentioned, uh, you know, they're usually tied with higher pay because of higher housing costs, which we talk about social equity, uh, a lot of times uh, precludes some of these uh, underserved and underrepresented demographics from being able to say pick up and move to those locations to take advantage of those opportunities uh so if i understood kind of what you're saying there you think that there's going to be some kind of equalization of that where you know somebody who grew up say in a poor part of of the south but has the wherewithal and the knowledge and the skills and abilities that an organization's looking for they may be able to get that job in a company in, say, New York that they couldn't have afforded to to take advantage of before. Is that kind of where I heard you going? That's right. That's right. And heck, some uh, some of these Bay Area companies will will pay those people in the South the same as they would pay a worker in the San Francisco Bay Area. There's still such a a war for talent. There's still so many highly skilled, highly technical jobs that go unfilled that um, employers are, are really expanding the scope of their talent pool and considering workers uh, outside their immediate geographic area. Um, and so huge opportunity uh, for, uh, for skilled workers, for employees to add skills, um, you know, increase their economic opportunity uh, through education and, and practice. Hmm. Now, it is I because I, I really like that because, you know, I've got to be honest with you, there, there's been a few times where uh, I've had opportunities in my life come up and I start looking at the cost of living in the area and I'm like, well, yeah, this is great, but I'm going to be losing probably half of my income when you look at the cost of everything else in there. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a severe downgrade if I take care of this. Is this something that you see like actually happening now or is this something that you're predicting is going to happen? Oh, this is real. I'm I'm part of several uh, communities of practice, HR leaders at at high tech, high growth companies. Um, Startup Experts has 250 heads of HR, of which I'm one. Uh, People Tech Partners, another 200, 250 you know heads of HR at at uh, high growth, high tech companies. You know, name organizations like uh, Slack and uh, Zoom and. Um, you know, many others that you would have heard of are part of these groups. And, you know, we're, we're on Google groups, we're on Slack channels, we're asking and answering questions of each other uh, every day, multiple times a day. And uh, there, there isn't even a question about it. It's, it's not an if, it's, it's a how. You know, the, 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 these communities are working out how to execute that, exta- that expanded talent pool model. Mm. Well, that was kind of going to be my next question here from a recruitment standpoint. How are how are these folks getting kind of notice uh, notified that these advanced opportunities are out there? You know, let's say we got a fresh crop of, of folks graduating out of some HBCUs, Jackson State, uh, Howard, that sort of stuff. How, how are you all kind of reaching out and saying, hey, these kind of remote opportunities are out there? Yeah, that's where it's tough. That's where there's still this, um, you know, awkward mismatch between employment opportunities and and people that are looking for them. You know, in the in the high tech startup arena of which you know the San Francisco Bay Area is really the cradle of of that uh, industry. You know, many of these companies nobody's heard of them before. They're not a household name. They don't have Super Bowl commercials. 
Um, so how do you know to look on their website for an opportunity? You, you just don't. And if they have 100 employees or 500 employees, they, they don't have the wherewithal to do university recruiting. Um, they're, they're posting on LinkedIn like anybody else. So, you know, really it depends on their ability to uh, put out a compelling posting on you know, the, the most popular job boards like LinkedIn and Indeed. Um, and they have limited recruitment um, resources to, to do that. And then it depends on the workers seeking it out and, and applying and having a, uh, having a compelling background. So, you know, it's really dependent on these job boards to serve as that, uh, uh, that meeting place. Mm, no, I love that because, uh, I mean, I've seen a big uptick in recruitment on LinkedIn. So uh, that kind of makes sense there. Now, uh, as I mentioned your bio, uh, you are kind of a co-author with T. Brad Harris on a book, Scaling for Success. Uh, people priorities for high growth organizations. Um, now what I like about this is you, you have the word people priorities for high growth organizations. Why did you choose that subtitle? Hmm. Um, well, other than the publisher liked it, uh, you know, people has been, uh, the name of the human resources function that um, you know, this, this high growth, high community has been gravitating towards. Human resources seems to want to change its name uh, every few years. And so you, you see chief people officers or the head of people and culture, whereas you used to be a vice president of human resources or a HR director or something like that. So you know, in part, it's to recognize the function. In part, it's to recognize that it's about people management. You know, that's really the focus. Uh, that that Brad and I had for this book, you know, in the specific context of a high growth organization. Now, whether that's a venture backed tech company, whether it's a, a bootstrapped accounting firm, or whether it's a you know, mid market private equity firm, if you're growing rapidly, you have some unique people and management challenges. And we saw that there was really this donut hole in the literature. It's either really heavy academic research. Uh, information from decades ago, or it's popular anecdotes from some big name company or big name investor that's just really a one-off story and, and that isn't necessarily tied to why that company was successful. You know, just because Google did it doesn't mean it'll work for you. Um, so we we were trying to fill in that donut hole to provide some real life practical support for these high growth companies. Well, I think that's the kind of that that uh, shiny object syndrome a little bit there, right? Is like you said, all you heard for the longest time is, "Well, Google's doing this. They've got slides, they've got beanbag chairs, they've got ping pong tables, and mm -hmm. Zappos is doing this." And you know, and and I really wonder how many how many startups put themselves out of business trying to do that from the beginning. Oh, it's so dangerous. You're really on both sides of the of the equation. You you see the the fun and games, the the perks and programs, the ping pong tables, and the you know house plants being sent to people that are working from home. Um, and, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you see OKRs being implemented uh, at an individual level with quarterly metrics, with stretch goals, and objectively measured at companies with 25 people. Um, that that seems a little crazy on both ends. Like, be brilliant at the basics. Get your foundation right and firm, um, and then you can start to do some some special, unique things. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is there's no such thing as a best practice. There's what's right for you right now, and that requires some critical thinking. Um, you know, just because Google did it doesn't mean it'll work for you. In fact, because Google did it with 100,000 plus employees and a very different profit margin and a very different size and stage and maturity level and stability level uh, probably means it could be counterproductive to a small, fast growth organization. So you got to think critically about these bright, shiny objects and uh, best practices. 
You know, and what I love about what you just said there is it's the thing that I, I run into probably the most. And I love the way you put it, but it's the thing I run into the most when it comes to uh, working with leaders on leadership development is it's the same concept. It's just uh, exchange Google and Amazon and all that with names like Simon Sinek and John Maxwell. I have to tell them the same thing just because this worked for them. And it did. I have no doubt that, that John Maxwell did all of these things that he says, but you can't just read the book and do what John Maxwell did and expect magic to happen. You really, I liked what you put there with critical thinking. You really have to personalize it for, for your leadership style and in your scenario for your organization style, right? Yeah. Another way of saying it is that context is more important than content. Mm. Um, so the best practice, whatever that program or process is, um, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, depending on the context. For each thing, there may be a time. Um, you can use the you know hammer and screwdriver analogy. Like if if all you have is a hammer, well everything looks like a nail. Um, you know if you have different tools that you can use at different times, you're probably more effective. Yeah. Now I get a a lot of veteran listeners on here, as you may can uh, tell by the title of the show, and uh, a lot of veterans now are getting into the entrepreneurial game, whether it's you know, t-shirts or, you know, whatever the, the shtick is that, that they uh, come up with. And some of them are doing very good jobs with the things that they're, they're taking on. But from an HR perspective, like when is the best time to really start thinking about human resources management when you're starting up a company? Is it, hey, I've got five friends and that's it? Or should they start thinking about HR like right off the bat? Yeah, think, things start to get interesting on the people and management front around 25 people. Um, at around 25 people, you've probably exhausted the friends and family network, or it's getting pretty thin anyway. Um, at 25 people, a single CEO probably can no longer manage every single person and know what every single person is working on at any given moment. So once you reach that 25-ish person count, um, you're starting to think about managers of people on your team, some distance in terms of awareness and trust uh, in the organization. So communication is more important. Some processes and the dirty word of structure uh, starts to become uh, more critical to help your organization scale. and around that 25 count, if you're continuing to grow quickly, you know, it's usually recruitment that's the first thing. Yeah, at least in the venture-backed uh, high-growth world, they, they think about how to hire more people more quickly and, you know, spend those venture dollars. So recruitment is a, is a very early focus. And often your office manager or executive assistant will turn into your recruiter, and then your recruiter will turn into your HR director. Um, that said, that's not necessarily the the best or most effective evolution every time. Um, once you're at a hundred or so people, and you have managers managing managers, um, and quite a bit of distance, uh, at that point, it's it's uh, you know really necessary to have some pretty effective management processes and structure in place. So, you know, it it would greatly behoove those organizations that are approaching a hundred in in the near term to have a professional in place that can help guide the construction of uh, uh, the the design and construction of management processes to help your organization work. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that because, you know, it, it, I wanted to tie these two things together here with, you know, a little bit of a story. And I'm sure you maybe have heard this story, but, you know, I'm, I'm a gaming nerd and I grew up on uh, Ataris and Nintendos and all that good stuff. And you know, kind of tying everything that Andrew here was talking about, it, it really reminded me of the story of Atari. You know, when Atari first came on the scene, they were they were the Google of the time, right? They were a very loose, fast uh, company. Like people, would, there were stories of people coming uh, to work and, and smoking marijuana at work. There was famous stories about a uh, about a hot tub and all sorts of things that happened in the seventies happened in that hot tub, and they all had fun. They enjoyed their work. They, they loved what was going on. And then fast forward to the, the mid to late nineties, they end up selling the company to Hasbro and Hasbro came in with kind of this more structured 
uh, more rigid kind of uh, practices and policies, uh, more commensurate with a company like Hasbro. And all the, the, the employees of Atari essentially revolted and the company just died because of this change of, of uh, HRs and, and responsibility, uh, well, actually expectations of responsibility. And so that's kind of a real, that's kind of a real problem that organizations have to, to think about is that long-term uh, outlook for the company, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the classic Marshall Goldsmith book, What What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Um, and, and as we talked about earlier, different methods for different times or different needs. So, you know, did, did Atari ultimately outgrow that fast and loose culture? Probably. Was it time to, you know, bring a little bit more professionalism to the workplace? Pro- probably. Yeah. Uh, drain the hot tub. <laughs> um, now, Hasbro, uh, very corporate. Um, you know, should they have approached that acquisition uh, with a little bit more flexibility in mind um, without losing the secret sauce that, that Atari had? Yeah, probably. So, you know, again, what worked for them um, in their past isn't necessarily what will work for them in the future. You know, just be conscious of it and make some good choices rather than, you know, running blindly into the future. Yeah, Exactly. Um, so I want to back up here a second because you, you used an acronym earlier that I want to kind of unpack a little bit here. You said OKR. What is an OKR? Oh, it's one of my favorite things to love to hate um, in the in the startup world. Uh, OKRs, uh, it stands for Objectives and Key Results. Uh, so once again, you know, not, nothing wrong with the practice of establishing objectives and key results for individuals and work teams. It's a, it's a practice that was popularized by Andy Grove, uh, Intel founder back in the 1970s. Um, and it's um, picked up a lot of traction, a lot of interest from the tech community, high growth community, where more and more leaders are implementing OKR practices within their early stage organizations. Um, and I would argue implementing that tool incorrectly, um, doing it in a way that is sadly detrimental to the health of many organizations. Well, I mean, so on the surface, I mean, objectives and key results, that sounds fairly benign. So how can you get in trouble by trying to, uh, you know, identify objectives and, and hold people to results? Yeah, yeah, um, a couple of different ways. So, you know, one, it's often implemented uh, as a re- reactionary control mechanism where the organization is now lo- large enough that the CEO founder doesn't know what everybody's doing. So that CEO founder um, overcorrects and implements a very strict and detailed practice of at an individual level on a quarterly basis, listing out five plus objectives, um, trying to provide a measurement on each one of those, uh, having a 70% target and a 100% stretch target, and then measuring people's performance against each of those. Um, Again, uh, not crazy, um, but in the context of a high growth rapidly changing, often ambiguous uh, startup environment, that could be administratively and bureaucratically um, impossible to execute. So if, if people's roles are changing, if the, five most, if the five most important things to your company are changing on, an, uh, on a frequent basis, how can you possibly ask at an individual level to have these very measurable items on a, on a short-term basis. You know, people forget Intel in the 1970s was already a very large, mature, well-established chip maker. And, you know, people had been in their jobs for many years and they were trying to get a better sense of, you know, control and productivity. Um, startups probably don't have the level of maturity and repetition and stability that uh, that Intel in the 1970s did. So, you know, great example, I think, of uh, useful tool, totally misapplied. 
Well, yeah, I mean, because it seems to me like in, in in the early stages of a startup, there's there needs to be a lot of uh, flexibility, as you were talking about earlier. And, and if you're if you've got all of these metrics in place and all of these thou shouts and all that good stuff, it seems like that would really just kind of throttle all of that creativity and flexibility that makes a startup so successful uh, in the beginning, right? Oh, absolutely. The the creativity, the flexibility. Um, yes, it, it's also administratively onerous. You shut the business down for weeks trying to set these goals, and they're probably not set very effectively, and the goals are changing before the end of the measurement period. And management teams just lose credibility in the eyes of their workers, where you're spending all this time on non-value-added measurement activity. Um, nobody's held accountable for the actual outcomes because it's not up to them anyway. Most work uh, of knowledge workers is being done in teams rather than at, at an individual level. You know, we're not making widgets or silicon chips, you know, stamping out silicon chips. Um, so it, it's, again, just totally misapplied in a lot of cases. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, I and I will agree with you there because, you know, I think it, it really – you know, I, I'm a big fan of of the concept of finite and infinite games. And uh, long before Simon Sinek ever wrote a book about it, I was uh, reading on James Carse's work with finite and infinite games. I'm, is it a concept you're familiar with? Um, not closely. No, would love to hear more. Yeah, well, so it, it talks about this, right, and, and being kind of counterproductive. And so the idea is, if you're playing a finite game, those are the things that most of us are are. Uh, used to. They're, you know, Monopoly, Purchasey, various card games. They have agreed upon set of rules that everybody goes into it knowing uh, what they are and what the outcomes are going to be and what the conditions for winning are. And when the game is won, it's over. Okay. Then there's infinite games. And infinite games are played to continue playing them. Uh, the rules can change to keep the game going. And in fact, they should change to keep the game going. Uh, you know, so a lot of cultures are considered uh, infinite games because they adapt with the times, they embrace new technologies, that sort of thing, right? Well, when you are playing a finite business is and probably should be an infinite game. Most people want to keep the business going. They want to make more money. They want to build a legacy. They want to be a you know, a uh, hundred, 200, 300 year company, not just a one or two week company. So by putting these things in place, well, they sound good. You're putting the company in a finite mindset. And so when they reach that 70% growth rate or whatever, they win and then they're done because they, they fulfilled the obligations of winning, first of all, but also on some level, they know that the game's going to start again in the next quarter. And chances are that the next quarter is going to have something similar. It says we want 70% growth again. So if I grow 140% this quarter, and now they want me to grow 70% again next quarter, that's a bigger hurdle to climb. So I hit 70%, I won, I'm done. And so setting these things can be very counterproductive. Whereas if you play the infinite game and say, hey, I want you to grow profits as much as you can this quarter. And you keep that idea going, that's much more sustainable and builds a much long-term uh, legacy-type organization. Does that make sense? Yep, makes a lot of sense. Reminds me as well of a, of a book from, I don't know, seven or eight years ago called The Great Game of Business. Uh, Jack Stack wrote that mm -hmm. about a international harvester uh, division um, and about really aligning and motivating the workforce towards a common goal. Um, and that's where I think getting the basics right is so important. Um, ensuring that everybody at the company knows what your top goals are. That, that's where a lot of startups and high growth early stage companies miss out. They overcorrect and create these super overly complicated processes to try to understand what everybody's doing every minute. Um, Whereas you could get a lot more benefit from just being really clear and really crisp on what's the company trying to accomplish um, and, and what's more important than something else. What are your priorities? So, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, some great examples from that, that book, The Great Game of Business, and, um, you know, some good lessons around, you know, getting the basics right before you, you know, implement some really complex management system. 
Yeah, no, I love that you mentioned uh, Jack Stack. Back in episode 72, I interviewed uh, Darren Dahl. Uh, Darren Dahl and Jack Stack worked together to write uh, the new book, uh, Change the Game. And uh, kind of what we're talking about here, the the big thing that the conclusion that they come to in that book is most businesses don't know what game they're in. And you got to identify that first to be able to get in the right game to play by the right set of rules. And uh, so, yeah, it was very interesting that, that you bring up Jack Stack because his co-author was a previous guest on on the podcast here. And, and I agree with you 100 percent. Both books are great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that is a big thing. And it, it's it's kind of hard to really know where you're going when you're that early in the process. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so before you you look at the at the minutia you know, get the broad strokes figured out, you know, get, get directionally aligned with your team. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, which is often really scary, often really scary to leaders and founders of, of high growth companies, especially if they're pursuing funding and, you know, pitching VCs that if, if you say it, or if you put it in writing, you might not make that goal. Um, and, the fear of your investors walking away or your employers looking for a, uh, a hotter startup, um, you know, that, that plays a factor as well. So, you know, in, in a lot of cases, it's overcorrection um, where you're trying to hold your workers to you know, a high level of expectation, but you're, you're not holding yourself and, and your company to that, to that same expectation. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, to that point, uh, one of the things you talk about in scaling for success is how to prioritize uh, in high growth organizations. What are things that high growth organizations, which you know a lot of startups, whether they sustain that growth or whether it fizzles out, they they really are kind of, especially in in the modern era, uh, they they really kind of tend to kind of flare up and see a lot of growth early on. What are the things that they should prioritize? I know we've probably talked about a few of them already, but uh, you know if you were to put it kind of in a priority order, what would they be? Sure. Sure. Well, um, I'll start with, it depends, right? It, it depends it. what your, what your context is, what your industry is, what your um, growth strategy and exit plan is and profit margins and competition and you name it, it, it depends. Um, so with that as the framework, rather than say, you know, marketing is most important or, you know, recruiting is most important. I'll say, you know, your biggest priority in a, in a high growth company is to prioritize. Like, let's start there. Prioritize. Um, if you're trying to move 30 things, they'll only move an inch. So pick your three things to go move a mile. Mm. Um, so once you pick your three things, then have a plan. Whatever that plan is, you know, don't overcomplicate it. Uh, make it clear. Communicate it really well so everybody that works on your team you know, knows what it is and knows what's important and, you know, what the plan is. Um, and, and that's something I've seen, again, a lot of reticence, a lot of fear to commit to a plan. Um, but just know it'll change. It'll evolve for sure. Um, but you need one. If, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Um, forget who said that, but couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, and then whatever that plan is, um, you, you need to, you know, stick with your ruthless prioritization, line up the resources, use your critical thinking to go execute on it, and, you know, continue to evolve. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sad that I can't uh, confidently say, you know, go do X. But, but I'll tell you, there's no simple playbook for high growth companies. If there was a playbook, um, we'd have a lot more successful enterprises. There'd be a lot, uh, a lot greater chance of success um, in, in the startup world in in high growth companies. Um, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, I, I think you laid it out there. I think you laid out a priority very clear because when you started with uh, uh, it depends, you know, I, I, I've seen this and, you know, I'm a big fan of shark tank and, and the profit and all these kind of shows that, that, uh, get into entrepreneurial endeavors and, and, you know, again, working with folks the way I do, but I, I've seen everything you just described there. So I like the starting with, it depends. Cause I've seen, 
I've seen organizations with outstanding products, but terrible plans. I've seen companies with great plans, but terrible products. And, you know, if you aren't taking the time to figure out where you are, which one do you have, or maybe you're lucky enough to have both, it's very hard to get any kind of uh, traction going if you don't know where you're at, right? That's right. That's right. So that's where the critical thinking applies, and that's where there's no such thing as a best practice. You have to understand your context before you can decide the content of whatever you, um, of, of the how you choose to execute. Um, and that's a lot of the work that I do in my consulting business on the talent and organizational side. I work with companies to help evaluate whether what got them to where they're at today will help take them to the place that they aspire to be. So, you know, do, do a talent inventory, um, figure out who likely has stretch and what help needs to be provided to the team to increase their chances of success. Um, so you, you have to understand where you're trying to go um, before you can decide how to get there. Now I'm going to ask because what I heard there was it takes a lot of adaptability and agility and all of those things mean you have to be comfortable with change. And we all know humans just love change, right? <laughs> of course. So, so how do you get folks to be comfortable with consistently changing uh, what they're doing? Well, in, in a lot of cases, you don't. You don't. So, you know, there, there's a – I think of um, a framework um, that's no willing – Enable, no with a K, K N O W. Mm -hmm. So uh, have an awareness, that's the no, of what you're trying to accomplish, where you're trying to go, what's needed. And then the willing is signing up for what it takes to get there. And that's where you lose a lot of people. Um, you usually lose people at the willing. Um, are they willing to do what it takes? Are they willing to change what they were successful at before? Or are they willing to step into a different role or roll up their sleeves more or uh, delegate more or you name it. It's the willing. And then the able, that's more about capabilities and resources, uh, raw skills. Uh, you can you can build some of those skills. You can find more resources. You know, the willing is often the stumbling block for, for a lot of folks. And, and you know what? Not everybody is perfectly suited. Um, their highest and best use uh, it isn't necessarily to ride with the organization through every stage of its growth, right? Steve Jobs famously got fired from the company he founded, and then he came back. Um, and, and arguably, his visionary perspective was great at the very beginning. You needed that animal spirit to get the company off the ground. But then when he needed to execute, he couldn't do it. But then that visionary aspect that he brought to the company became important again in a different way as Apple was bigger, older, and more mature. So you know, think about where your skill sets apply. Think about where you're able to add value and what you enjoy doing. And hey, not everybody is, is well-suited for every stage and every seat at a company along the journey. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. That's, you know, most people don't retire from the, the company that they start working at right out of school. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, that's valuable right there. I mean, especially if you're getting into, especially if you're at the startup stage or uh, you, you got to realize that, that growth is, is good and, and change growth requires change. And, and I like that piece where you said, but you, you don't, I mean, I think that's a really good answer because I don't think you should ever get comfortable with change to the point where you're just willing to change just because everybody thinks you should change. You should always have some type of healthy resistance and pushback to change, right? Yeah, there's there's definitely some element of signing up for whatever the mission is ahead of you. Um, and if you don't think that you that that's right for you, so the there's a there's a WIFM aspect. What's in it for me? You know, is that the right thing for me? Am I the right person to help deliver this? Could somebody else do it better, faster, cheaper? Um, you know, thinking about the match between the company's aims and the the individual's aims that that's important as well. Well, I love what you just said there, and and the fact that you just talked about uh, Steve Jobs because 
you know, I mean, that, that whole thing, it wasn't exactly like he came to that epiphany on his own. He, he kind of had to get forced into that. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with his ego and practices and, and uh, lack of being able to work with some of the folks at the higher levels of Apple as it was is moving. So I guess that's a the question I'm trying to get to here is as a founder of an organization where you think that you know everything there is about it because, well, it's your baby. How do you help them come to the realization and maybe get that ego out of the way a little bit and realize you really have to change everything that you're doing if you want this thing to survive? Oh, boy. there There's a, a trillion-dollar question right there. Yeah. Um, you know, so you, you can you, you can get hit solidly in the nose with it and, and still – um, and still not see it. So, you know, go back to the no willing enable framework. Um, so that, that awareness, you know, that can be a gap sometimes, but usually it's the willing. Usually it's the, the willingness to delegate, the willingness to let go a little bit, the, the willingness to implement some structure. But more often than anything else, I hear from founders, hey, how can I keep the culture the way it was? How do I main, how do I continue to grow but maintain the culture that got us to where we are. Hear that all the time, and so that's the willingness piece. And you know, the answer that I give is, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know if we can work together mm. uh, because your culture needs to change for you to, you to evolve and you to grow and you to be successful. Um, so I can work with you to help identify what's the core, what's really special and essential to you, and what things can and should change. But if you're trying to keep things the same as when you were 25 and you're on your way to 250, um, you, you'll probably struggle. Uh, so it's the willing piece. And, uh, you know, some of these stories and anecdotes, you know, can can help people uh, open their eyes. You know, I, I have a, a treasure trove of articles that other smarter people have written that that I can share with, with folks as well. Um, but, but I think that that willing piece, when it's your baby, you know, do you really you know, want your, your baby to, your baby bird to leave the nest and fly away and spread their wings and, you know, let your managers manage their departments. Uh, boy, it's hard. Boy, it's really hard. Oh, I bet. I bet. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned that willing piece there, right? Cause, uh, you know, there's that saying that, that uh, people don't resist change. They resist being changed. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know the hundred percent that I even subscribe to that because I think, I don't think people even resist being changed. I think people are skeptical of change because of the fear uh, of the unknown that change brings. And a lot of that can be overcome, not all of it, but a lot of that can be overcome by strong leadership that really communicates why change is necessary and what the organization looks like on the other side of change. So people can come to grips with that fear a little bit and buy in better. Would you? agree with that or not yeah I, lo- I love it and boy let, let's uh let's name drop some more you know book titles and and concepts along the way so yeah that that makes me think of who moved my cheese right which uh has has a lot to do with control and agency um and, and then i think about uh daniel pink's book drive where um you know it talks about human motivation is based off of autonomy mastery and purpose and so autonomy has a lot to do with that agency element you get to decide what you do and how you do it Uh, that's a major motivator and if you if you lose that agency if you lose that autonomy um, or you have the impression that you may be losing it that that can can cause some some real uh some real disruption and then the purpose you know to your point um leaders communicating the why and the where we're going uh that ties into the purpose you know if people don't understand that uh if the no is missing if uh, they haven't signed up for that destination the willing may be missing um so lots of linkages between uh many of these concepts well yeah i agree 100 percent. and it kind of tie in this conversation full circle here a little bit kind of going back to the beginning where we talk about the change in, in work and telework versus physical office buildings and stuff like that. I can see a lot of people, especially new people entering the, the workforce, some of those uh, uh, social groups that we talked about, you know, having that kind of concern. Okay, now, yes, now the landscape has changed to a point where 
uh, I can do this work remotely and afford to work for insert company name. But what happens tomorrow when they sit back and they say, well, look, we really want people to start coming into a physical office. Does yeah. my job go away? Do I now have to move to San Francisco, New York, wherever it is? Or am I going to be in a grandfathered in system? And, you know, so that's kind of those things I think about when I, uh, when I talk about, you know, the fear is what does it mean to me? What does it mean to my family? Am I going to have to make my family move? Uh, is it meaning an entire different career path if, if this changes to a point where it's untenable for me? So, yeah, I love it. I love everything you're saying there because it's it, change is a very personal thing. We talk about all politics are local. All change is personal, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the world of remote work, I, I think that we'll see that continue to develop and settle in over the next months and, and even years. Uh, I'm I'm aware of some employers that are trying to bring uh, their workers back sooner rather than later. There's a there's a preference in some cases that there's a there's a belief that workers are mo more productive when they can physically be together. And at the same time, there are a bunch of organizations that said we're we're never going back. We're going to be um, distributed. We'll be remote first. And uh, I think we'll see vastly differing outcomes in in those two uh, channels. So the, the companies that are more flexible, more remote, will have bigger talent pools and more people that are willing to work in that environment. And the companies that require that workers are in one physical place are then constrained by the geography. And then they'll have an sm even smaller talent pool that may not want to make the commute in. Or um, uh, it'll, it'll be a, uh, a natural selection process. And I think it may force some organizations whose leaders would prefer to be in person uh, to be more distributed over yeah. time. No, I agree. I agree. I love it. I love it. Well, Andrew, look, we've been chatting here for about 45 minutes, and this has been some great conversation. I, I want to thank you for uh, you know, be, being a guest on the show and, and sharing uh, some of your time with us. It's It's been a blast so far. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, lo love the conversation track. Hope it's helpful to uh, some of your listeners. I, I think it has been. And uh, well, no, I'm, I'm going to say I'm sure it has been because we covered a lot of territory. But just in case there is something we haven't covered, is there anything that you really want to leave with listeners that we didn't get a chance to touch on? Oh, boy. Um, we, we sure covered a lot of ground and talked about a, a lot of other people's work. <laughs> there's there's a lot of good work in this space. Hopefully that'll all be in the show notes in the show notes and um, yeah, as well as information about how to get in touch with me. Well, absolutely. And on that note, uh, you know, again, as you mentioned, we have talked about a lot of people's work and I want to mention it a couple of times here. But Andrew is co-author of Scaling for Success, People Priorities for High Growth Organizations. And so on that note, if people want to find out, you know, more about you, uh, your services and uh, how to, you know, get a copy of your book and all that sort of stuff, how can they go about doing that? Um, you can check me out on LinkedIn, Andrew Bartlow, and my main website is Series B, as in boy, SeriesBConsulting.com. Okay. Series B consult. Yes. And I will definitely have those in the show notes to make it easy for people to click on. Um, so with the book, um, you know, how's that going? Are you, uh, doing anything else with it or, uh, what's, what's kind of the plan, uh, the next phases for the book, I should say. Oh my goodness. It's been a journey. Um, I started it, uh, three and a half years ago, finished writing it about a year ago. <laughs> I'm working though with, uh, with an academic press, Columbia university business school. I'm, I'm just really honored that they, you know, picked me up as, as an author and were, were willing to publish my work, but at the same time, it's an academic press in the midst of COVID. So things have moved <laughs> really, really slowly. Uh, it's, it's released in, uh, July of 2021. Uh, we're talking live right now in May. Uh, but you can pre-order it out on Amazon. And in the meantime, while I've been waiting for it to be released in print and, and uh, an electronic version, I created a executive education program for founders, CEOs, and HR leaders to help them 
put some of these ideas and practices into play in their organizations. Um, and that's called People Leader Accelerator. Outstanding. No, I like that. And, and that's on your Series B website? That's right. You can uh, link to the book and link to the uh, executive education program. Outstanding. Well, there you go, folks. Take advantage of both of those. And again, uh, you know, I acknowledge I've got a large veteran community here, and I know all my fellow veterans out there are always looking for entrepreneurial type uh, uh, opportunities. I think this is uh, going to be a valuable. You, you've heard everything Andrew has shared with us so far. Uh, I think this is going to be an extremely valuable resource for you to have. Uh, at your disposal as you go through uh, the process you, from startup to trying to build something that's got some longevity to it. So, uh, yeah, this is going to air in early July. So we'll still have a couple of weeks by the time this thing comes out till the book's widely available. But check out those, uh, check out the website, check out the resources. Andrew's been on a bunch of podcasts, including this one. Um, the information's out there, folks, and uh, we'll make it as easy as we can for you to find it and just click on it and go and get it. And, uh, you know, again, Andrew, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and uh, spending the last, you know, 50 minutes or so with uh, me and my guests. Hey, my, my pleasure, really. Thank you. Oh, it's been great. And listeners, thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, take advantage of all these resources and everything that Andrew and I have, have talked about. Definitely go visit the site. Consider signing up for uh, the, the programs there. And, uh, you know, use that to catapult your journey, wherever, whatever stage it is in. Uh, also, uh, you know how to reach out to me, burden.command at gmail.com. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, uh, we can work through them that way. Uh, thank you again for keeping up on the rating, reviewing, and subscribing of the show and sharing it out. So all these messages like Andrew's can get shared uh, further and with more people and, and change more workplaces for the positive. Change HR concepts for the better. So thank you for taking that responsibility on and, uh, and, and being serious about it. I really do appreciate you all for doing that. Uh, with that, one last time, thank you for your time. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one -on -one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.